The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 181. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page, at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page, at Brian McClanahan. Also go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. Give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. And of course, you can always support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You can enroll there for free. It's always free to enroll. But of course, you can uh, pick up one of the five courses that I have uh, for offering there. You've got uh, one on the Constitution, one on the Declaration, one on the war, the only war that matters in the South, uh, one on Alexander Hamilton, and one on secession. So they all work very well together. So if you got them all, you'd be covered. And of course, if you enroll at McClanahan Academy when I roll out new classes, you'll get the best deals during launch time. So you're going to want to enroll even if you don't pick up anything right now. But of course, Christmas is coming up. Think about a McClanahan Academy gift for Christmas. And also, if you like this podcast, please rate it on iTunes. It'll help moving up the list, get more people interested viewing the podcast, and so get more listeners that way and have a, a bigger Brian McClanahan audience and camaraderie. Okay, this is also my second week in a row where I've done two podcasts in a week, so I'm really excited about that. And uh, I'm going to be on this schedule now for the for the foreseeable future. So uh, keep looking for two Brian McClanahan Show podcasts per week. And of course, you can always get three if you wanted to go to abbevilleinstitute.org. You can pick up my Abbeville Institute podcast during the week as, as well. I do that on Friday. It comes out on Saturdays. So uh, you want to get that. If you want me three times a week, that's how you can do it. All right. Well, I want to talk about an issue today that's um, it's interesting. And it's, it's a Think Locally, Act Locally day. And that Think Locally, Act Locally topic is the left's, the left's new uh, fascination with federalism. And not just federalism, they're talking about nullification, they're talking about secession. They have rediscovered the Constitution. These lefty progs who have forgotten about it for nearly 100 years have now rediscovered it. Uh, and that's an amazing development. Now, I don't know how long their commitment will last if they win the next election, if they win in November and take back the House. I don't think they're going to get the Senate. I'm not even certain they're going to get the House. But if they take back the House... I'm certain that their flirtation with uh, uh, federalism is going to diminish and dwindle quite a lot. Uh, but that said, I mean, this is like they're they're at the uh, they're at the party and the and the lights are getting ready to come on, and you've got you've got to try to find something. Uh, so you 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 uh, you find the the person that's least attractive there, and and that's your that's your person. Uh, but uh, to them, federalism is the least attractive person at the party, but hey, they've got to be at the party, and so might as well find something. Now, it, it, I say it's the least attractive person at the party currently, because for a long time, the progressives, the reformers, were very interested in this idea of federalism and state powers, because that's how that was the vehicle they used to bring America their reformist message. If you don't think so, we're going to talk about that. Now, first and foremost, I, I talked about this new commitment. I'm actually going to read, it's a paragraph. This comes from 
Hillary Clinton. And she just tweeted this out yesterday. Uh, you'll get this podcast on a Thursday. So today is a, is a Tuesday. She tweeted this out on Monday, uh, October 22nd. Quote, A reality of a Supreme Court with a right-wing majority is that the states are now an important front in protecting civil rights, especially the rights of the most vulnerable among us. State legislatures of Democratic majorities can help preserve access to the ballot for people of color, reproductive freedoms for women, the rights of LGBTQ people, protections for immigrants, Medicare expansions, and more. Winning back state legislatures is also important in this last election before the 2020 census. State legislatures redraw congressional districts every 10 years based on those numbers, and Democratic legislative majorities can shut down gerrymandering that disenfranchises sick voters. State legislative races are also a great way to make an impact as an activist. The budgets and walk lists are smaller than those of congressional races, so you can move the needle with a few volunteer hours or donations, end quote. So this is what Hillary Clinton tweeted out on October 22nd. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into this because she points out some things that are entirely true. In fact, wow, I mean, she's actually saying something that's true. Amazing. Now, um, we'll cover some of this stuff. Also, not long ago, the gubernatorial candidate from Maine, a woman named Janet Mills, uh, did a video after the uh, Kavanaugh hearings saying that Maine, now we have to think about states' rights, we have to think about the state. She didn't use that term, states' rights. We have to think about the state and protecting people from these evil conservatives in Washington, D.C. The state has to be the protection. Uh, that's This is now becoming the mantra of the progressives. They don't think that they're going to control the reins of the national government. And this is why I have said from the beginning, nationalism really is the enemy of anything good in America. Uh, and what I don't think any of this stuff, I mean, in the way that they're f- framing it, this is, not a, this is not a promotion of anything the progressives are doing. But when you look at domestic issues, when you look at the internal police and the internal issues of a state, the internal affairs, this is all what this is about. Nationalism is the enemy of anything good in America when it comes to these things. Now, of course, the progressives would say, well, you know, but states' rights have been used for all kinds of bad things in America. In fact, what you find with state powers is that the states have been more innovative than anything else. This is why John Marshall was so against state powers, because he thought the states were going to just run amok over real conservative government, and he was afraid of guillotines being rolled all through the countryside and lopping off heads. I mean, the, 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 the traditionally what, we, what would be called the conservatives in the founding period were against state powers. And I say the conservatives. These are people like Hamilton and Marshall who would be uh, the uh, conservatives in a European sense, so to speak. Though federalism is a traditionally conservative British model when it comes to government. If you look at the imperial structure, I think Jack, Jack Green has done a fantastic job on that in his book uh, on the constitutional crisis of the American War for Independence. But regardless, there was this, you know, you look at how these things are being uh, discussed in the founding period, and, and the founders who were called conservatives were worried about state powers. They thought the states were too democratic too reform-minded. 
The Constitution was supposed to clamp down on some of those things in some ways. But it also left the internal affairs and the internal police alone for the states. This is the only way the Constitution was ratified. So all these things, this laundry list of things that Hillary Clinton points out. Uh, first and foremost, when she says that the, the states can help preserve access to the ballot for people of color. Well, first of all, and I, and I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this. I think I did mention this in the podcast, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago, when I was looking at uh, the power that people have at the state level. And in many cases, with the exception of a couple of states, I mean, California is way out of whack. But in most cases, uh, you have more political power at the state level, and just in terms of a representative ratio, than you do anywhere else. And not just that, when you look at minorities, you know, for example, uh, there's one, uh, I'm sorry, two, if you count Camilla Harris, African-American members uh, of the United States Senate. Two. And uh, two out of 100, that's that's 2%. I guess Cory Booker, three, sorry, Cory Booker now, three, 3%, 3% of the United States Senate is African-American. When you look at just percentage-wise, that's 10% lower than the number of African-Americans in the United States as a whole. So if you just went with percentage-wise, proportionally, there should be 13 African-American U.S. Senators. There's three. You look at the House of Representatives, same thing. I think the percentage is about 8 eight or 9% there. So still lower than the percentage of African Americans in the United States. Now, contrast that to, say, a state in the South. Take, take Alabama. The, the African American population of Alabama is about uh, 30%. And the representative population of Alabama, in terms of how many African Americans in the are in the Alabama legislature, is at... 30%. So where are African Americans better represented? In the U.S. Congress, with a national government, where they've got 3 to 8%, or in your state legislatures? And this is the case across the South, where supposedly African Americans are disfranchised, uh, they have no voice. I mean, take look at any, look at your city governments, uh, for example. Uh, your city governments, if you have uh, cities in the Deep South, where you have African-American majorities, those cities tend to have African-American city councils. Majority, African-American city councils. So where is the discrimination? It doesn't exist. This is all a fabrication. Certainly, I mean, you can make a case, well, they're underrepresented at the quote-unquote national level. Well, of course they are. <laughs> of course they are, because uh, th- those are representative ratios way out of whack, that the quote-unquote national government is not a truly representative government. When and It was designed that way. I mean, these, these people were supposed to be there for general concerns of the union, not your internal affairs, your internal police of your states. The states were always better equipped, equipped to handle all these things. And for years, the left knew this. I mean, they, they, they understood this. When you go back to the progressive era, they understood this. And so I, I find it fascinating that here they are revisiting revisiting these these particular issues in the uh, in the 21st century you have people again Hillary Clinton Janet Mills a whole bunch of progressives are starting to talk about the uh, federalism as this panacea to their problems and it always has been it's always been there now of course I think they're gonna have a hard time winning state legislatures back because most Americans realize that 
that the left, the progressives, are on crazy train. And they don't want that nonsense in their state. So the only way the left can do it is by winning national elections. And the only thing, and so they have to win the presidency. But now that they've been knocked out, supposedly, of controlling the Supreme Court, I mean, they're going bonkers. They don't know what to do. They haven't figured these things out yet. They never thought they would be in this position in 2016. I mean, this is the real issue. The left never thought that Hillary Clinton would lose in 2016 and that Donald Trump would be able to appoint two, perhaps three, maybe even four Supreme Court justices. I can only imagine what would happen if uh, you know something happened to one of the more elderly members of the Supreme Court on the progressive side, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, uh, Souter, uh, either one of those individuals, if, they, if something was to happen to them, and Donald Trump in the next two years before the 2020 election is able to uh, have another nomination. I mean, I can only imagine how, how nasty the politics is going to get because the left thinks that that's the only way they can control things. But here you have Hillary Clinton saying, well, we're just going to have to go back to the states. It's always been that way. And now I talk about, as I said, history. You look at some of the things that happen in history. The left has always been, or, or the states have always been the leaders in uh, these reform movements. And, and everyone knew this. In fact, this is why John Marshall tried to smack down the states so often. He was afraid that the states would be uh, the uh, bastions of Jacobinism and that they would be running around with guillotines and other things, you know, chopping off uh, the heads of quote-unquote conservatives like Marshall or Alexander Hamilton. That's why Hamilton wanted to get rid of the Democratic-Republican clubs and the Whiskey Rebellion. I mean, this is, this is what was happening there. They thought the states would always do this. Now, you can say from a conservative American conservative position, the states have been essential in getting the Constitution ratified. I mean, these are the building blocks of the Union. But the states were always able to do things within their own borders that could not be done at the central level. And that was by design. I mean, this is the British model. So... When you get into who's conservative, who's liberal, you know, kind of thing, or who's who's reformer, all these situations. This is why, you know, Kevin Goodsman writes a book, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, uh, a radical, um, and Jefferson was a reformer in Virginia, but he was a dedicated Federalist, you see, and so that. When I say Federalist, I'm talking about federalism with a federal republic, a federal union where the states had primacy in that government. He was dedicated to that. So he could reform Virginia, but it never extended beyond that. And that was the key. That is an American conservative position in protecting federalism. And so these progressives are figuring this out again. Now, um, a couple of things about that. So let's look at history. First and foremost, go back and look at just about Every reform movement in American history, and they all essentially started in the states. We'll take some of the popular ones. For example, abolition. Well, slavery was abolished in more states than not by 1860 on the eve of war. And how did they do that? Well, the states did it. The states abolished slavery. No one said the states can't abolish slavery. So the entire position that, well, we... You know, we couldn't abolish slavery without the war. So that's not true at all. Slavery is already being abolished in states without the war. It was already happening because the states could do these things. Uh, women's suffrage. Before the 19th Amendment, you had several states that allowed women to vote. Now, they couldn't vote in all the states, but they I think the majority of the states at that point, women could vote. 
I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but so the st- women could already vote. How about Af- suffrage for African Americans? Again, before the 15th Amendment in the North, African Americans could vote. It was already happening. Now, that wasn't the case, of course, before the war. Most northern states had all kinds of restrictions on African Americans owning property, serving on juries, all kinds of things. But after the war, that changed. And so states were already innovative in that way. How about temperance? Uh, the idea that uh, there has there can be uh, restrictions on alcohol or drugs. These are all state issues. Prostitution. All these things that we consider to be reform reform movements, reform measures, all these things appeared in states first. And let's just move forward into the modern era. Uh, for example, um, you have uh, Obamacare. The, the left correctly pointed out that Obamacare was actually just Romney care because Mitt Romney, as governor of Massachusetts, was giving this to Massachusetts. Now, there's a clear distinction here. It was perfectly legal for Massachusetts to do this because they can. You can have all the socialized medicine you want in your state. That's, that's their dirty little secret. I mean, Hillary Clinton points this out. We can do all these things. Yeah, you can. If the state of California wanted to have socialized medicine, if the state of Massachusetts, if the state of Connecticut, if the state of New York, all these states want to have socialized medicine, they could. You could offer that to every single resident of your state. And therefore, this would never be a quote-unquote national issue. Now, some states wouldn't have it, thankfully, because... Uh, the fact is, it's a disaster financially. But uh, you could have it in your state. Massachusetts had it. It didn't work well, but they had it. And so after you, this is, this is the thing with everything. This is why nationalism is the enemy of, of, of real good government in America. Again, you look at all kinds of issues. The states have had these things first, and then they don't work. And so then you foist them on everybody else. But the left pointed out, yeah, this Romney care. They're exactly right. The Republicans created this national health insurance idea, uh, the way that way that it's actually been implemented in Massachusetts. But again, perfectly legal in Massachusetts on a small scale, perfectly legal. The states can do these things. The general government cannot. That's the whole key, constitutionally. Uh, you look at uh, sanctuary cities. This is a big issue for the left now. Sanctuary cities. Uh, immigration. The states have long had primacy in that. If you look at traditionally how these things are supposed to work out, the states could determine who could live there and who couldn't. They always could do that. Sanctuary cities are legal so long as the state allows it to happen. Now, um, there's been some challenges of this. I think in California, California said it's a sanctuary state, and some of the some of the cities are now challenging that, saying, "Well, the state can't do that. This is federal law." Um, it's, it's not. The states could allow people to live there if they want to. Uh, well, this gets into the whole immigration issue, and I know it's a, it's a big issue. I've already done a podcast on that, and I've already had people get cranky with me about that. Uh, but uh, it is a state issue. I mean, you could, as I said in that podcast before, you can make a case that there could be some federal restrictions on immigration. But throughout history, generally, this was a state issue. Uh, what about marijuana legalization? Again, a state issue. The states are doing these things all the time. Uh, Fourth Amendment issues, right to privacy. The states can do these things. All these things are state issues. All of them are state issues. Firearms, abortion, all these things are state issues. Yet, we don't seem to think that way. 
Why? Because we've been programmed like robots to think that all these things are federal issues. And they're not. They're not federal issues at all in any way. Because the Constitution is very clear on what the general government can do. And it can't do any of these things. So the progressives' new interests in thinking locally, acting locally, it's nothing new. Reformers and progressives have been doing these things for over a century. In fact, the only way the progressive movement really kicked in was through this particular idea. Back in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, progressives figured out they weren't going to win, quote-unquote, national elections. In fact, people thought progressivism was dead in the late 19th century, that the conservatives had essentially killed it. Um, It hadn't because the progressives still had a lot of power at the state and local level. And I could list off a wholesale a wholesale list of things where the progressives made inroads on the state level. Uh, and how they did it was through permeation. They got involved in your, and, and I've talked about this, your local organizations, your, your rotary clubs, your, your city councils, your school boards, all those things. This is how they got involved in things. And they pushed a progressive agenda, and eventually that, that became a bigger agenda. And you look at some things that we just take as commonplace today. For example, all the money, all the, the government money that's pumped into schools, that is a completely progressive agenda. That happened at the that was a thinking locally, acting locally issue. Things like referendum, recall, primaries, ballot initiatives, all those things are progressive agendas. And all that happened at the state and local level. All of that happened there. Uh, zoning ordinances, zoning codes, all that, and building codes, all of that is progressivism. And we could say, well, those are we like some of these things. All of that, though, is progressivism. Um, so you look at these issues, all that happened because of local, think local, act local, or think locally, act locally. All that happened because of that in the progressive era. Uh, hired city officials, progressivism. Uh, this is what you're getting. You know, these direct democracy techniques and all these things. This is all progressivism. Uh, your modern feminist movement, uh, in many ways, was a local phenomenon. Uh, so, you look at these issues and you think to yourself, progressives are just trying to just starting to figure this out again because they've had the reins of power for so long in America. I mean, going back a hundred years, more than a hundred years. They've had the reins of power. I mean, you could say, well, they didn't have it during the 1920s. This is true. I mean, the, the, the quote-unquote conservatives theoretically controlled the government in the 20s. I think you, can, you could argue this point. But they sort of did. And then, uh, I mean, Coolidge certainly was. But in terms of the actual apparatus and what was going on, you had a lot of progressives in the Republican Party. And then, but since the, since the New Deal, since Franklin Roosevelt, the Democrats have controlled the government for so long in so many ways. Supreme Court. They've controlled it since Roosevelt's court. Now they don't. And this is why they're having a conniption. This is why they are so upset because they, they think they've lost. What Hillary Clinton has said now is, wait a second here. Uh, we still got the states. The states have always been there. This is, and, and conservatives have figured this out. And so this is why conservatives are, are putting their agenda into place at the state and local level. It's what needs to happen. It's really where the battleground should take place. And Hillary Clinton is 100% right. You can have more of an impact. A hundred people can make a big impact on the steps of a state legislature or a city government. hundred people make no impact in Washington, D.C. 
You have 100 people, though, that show up to the uh, Capitol building at your state. Well, that those 100 people are going to get on the news. Or you show up to your local courthouse, 100 people there are certainly going to make news to protest something or to say something about what's going on in government. So it's important to get involved in these things. At the, at think locally, act locally. 100 people showing up to your school board meeting, your city council meeting, you're going to make a big impact. So this is why you know the progressives are figuring this out, and it's always been this way. Now, I, I want to end this particular episode uh, after the history le- lesson, after we talk about Hillary, but I want to end it with a conference that's coming up in Texas, Dallas, Texas, November 10th. Um, if you listen to the Abbeville Institute podcast, I've talked about it there, but um, I want to promote, because some of y'all don't listen to that podcast. So uh, there's a conference coming up. It's on uh, the revival of uh, secession and state nullification. And it has a very interesting slant to it. And it's this idea of the left figuring out federalism. And there's a couple pieces that the Abbeville Institute has, has published uh, in the last couple of weeks on this issue. One is written by Dr. Livingston, Don Livingston, who is the president of the Abbeville Institute. And looking at the list of speakers at this particular event, you've got Michael Bolden, 10th Amendment Center. Um, You've got, who's a libertarian, Don Livingston, of course, Dan Fisher, who was a gubernatorial candidate for the state of Oklahoma on a state's rights platform. In fact, his entire platform was, and they call themselves abolitionists, was ending abortion in Oklahoma, and they were just going to nullify it. They were just going to go in and nullify nullify Roe v. Wade and say, we're done with it. Um, He came in fourth, but he didn't have any money. He still came in fourth. That's pretty good. Uh, Alan Mendenhall is going to talk about, who's a uh, director of a legal uh, center in Alabama, is going to talk about uh, what can be done for the federal courts. Jeff Dice from Mises Institute. Kirkpatrick Sale, who is a, uh, certainly a, a, a leftist, is going to talk about secession. He's the president of the Middlebury Institute, which is all about secession. And then Marcus Ruiz Evans. Marcus Ruiz Evans is the leader of the Cal Exit Movement. The idea that California needs to secede from the Union and create its own little socialist utopia. And his point, he's, he's very interesting. He says, look, even if we win in 2020, he's got a lot of friends who are progressives and they're just looking to take. He said, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. We just need to get out of the Union. We need to. Ha- I mean, look, why, why is it that we want to punish all these red state people and have them be like us? Let's just part ways as friends and say we can get along. That's the, that's the interesting thing about this new interest on the left. In federalism, the whole point of it is peace. We could all just get along if we just had our own little areas that we controlled, and then you're not trying to bully anyone into your position. No one's trying to say, you know what, you got to take our laws, and you got to like it. And if you don't like it, too bad. We're going to get in your face. We're going we're gonna to abuse you. We're going to get in your face at restaurants. All these stupid things that are happening. And the left is the violent ones. I mean, look, I've already done a podcast way back before all this stuff started happening recently here on the violent left. I mean, the left has always been the violent people in, Amer- in, in American history, in world history. It's always been that way. The left are the violent ones. So why can't we all just be friends and get along and just have our own little little spheres of influence? In a, federated, in a federal republic, a federation of states, that would all work. So the Cal Exit people are going to be there at this conference, and he's going to talk about that. Hey, what we need to do is be friends and part ways as friends. And he's going to bring out some of his supporters who are who are leftists to this particular event. And everyone's going to talk, and, and nobody's going to get upset with each other because the whole point is you want to be independent. We want you to be independent. We want to be independent. Hey, 
uh, leave. Imagine a world without Nancy Pelosi. If you're on the right, Nancy Pelosi or, or Camilla Harris or Dianne Feinstein. Imagine a world without them. And that would be the case if California left the union. They could have their entire progressive utopia. And I'm sure if they left, then Washington and Oregon would also leave. Heck, you might even have New England think about seceding. I mean, because they would be in such a supreme minority without California, they would be in trouble. They would never control the government anymore. So imagine a world like that. Now, you could say if federalism was really the case, you wouldn't have to leave if all these things, if, if, if people would just listen to, say, Hillary Clinton, I know it's crazy to say that, but if people just listen to Hillary Clinton and say, we don't need the national government, quote-unquote national government, we don't need it. You have your state and local government. And essentially what they're saying, and, and the piece by Ronnie Kennedy uh, this week on the Institute is saying that, you know, if, if the Supreme Court somehow overturned Roe v. Wade, I can guarantee you states, leftist states, would just nullify it. They would just say, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep clinics open here in our states. They would just do it. In fact, uh, Cuomo, the governor of New York, is saying these things. We're just going to fight it. We're just going to keep it open. We're just going to keep it in the state. Well, that's exactly right. This is the way it's always supposed to, to have been. And these progressives are figuring this out. It's amazing. It's amazing that you're having this interest in federalism because Donald Trump wins an election. If anything else, if Donald Trump's legacy is going to be the revival of federalism, and I did a podcast, I think it was episode 17, Donald Trump and federalism. I took a position that he was going to be much more interested in real federalism on some issues than any president before. But what's happened is his election has revived interest in federalism on the left. They're thinking locally and acting locally. I mean, all this interest in Stacey Abrams in Georgia and winning the, I don't think she's going to win, but all the interest there, as I've said, I don't think there's going to be a blue wave. I'm, I mark this down. I don't think that's going to happen in a couple of weeks. I just don't think that's happening. Um, I don't think there's going to be a blue wave. I don't think that Stacey Abrams is going to win in, um, in Georgia. I think the progressives are going to be really disappointed in how this works out for them. They might, maybe would get the house, but I think that um, just like in 16, the polls are all wrong. Uh, people don't don't really pay attention to polls, and they're going to go out and they're going to vote. And the Trump supporters are going to be out there to vote. And so uh, while early voting and other things is pointing in a different direction, I think it was pointing in a different direction in 16 as well when Trump won the election. So that's the, that's the interesting part. This will be a lot of fun to see what happens. But at the end of the day, all this is irrelevant. All these things would be irrelevant if we just had real federalism. It wouldn't matter who serves in the White House. It wouldn't matter who's in Congress because all they're dealing with is how we're going to regulate commerce uh, between the states, not interest, not intrastate commerce and foreign trade and defense. That's all they're going to worry about. And that's all they need to worry about. And all these, all this political theater, this comedy of errors, all these things wouldn't even be necessary. It wouldn't even be necessary. So I think it's fascinating and the, the, both these pieces that the Abbey of Institute are focused on, this new left-right coalition, this red-blue states getting along, I think it would be fascinating uh, should the left start trying to pull some of this stuff off because it would open the door to conservatives being able to do the exact same thing. You see, the left is supposedly blameless. They can, they can do no wrong. Everything they do is a pure, innocent thing, and it's all for the interests of the people. Look at what how Hillary Clinton framed her... Position. It's all for the interests of the people, to protect people. 
Well, that's the same thing with conservatives. They're protecting their constituents from the left. So if we're, if we're about protecting our constituents, then that's what federalism really is. And uh, I find it fascinating that the left is really getting interested in this. And hopefully this continues. So go to that conference. You go to abbevilleinstitute.org, A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, abbevilleinstitute.org. In the middle of the page, you have a, a, a button that says, uh, or a, a section that says, um, you're invited. And you click on that, take you out to the conference. You can, you can register there. It's in Dallas, Texas, November 10th. Great list of speakers. It's going to be a fantastic conference. And uh, I think you're going to learn something. And I think you're going to come away from that conference energized about the possibilities of real federalism in America if lefties really start to think about these things, progressives. Uh, even Ian Milheiser, the, the sniveling progressive uh, from Think Progress, is actually talking about federalism. Now, he's, he's 100% right. And one other thing I want to point out before I, before I go with Calhoun. You see, Calhoun... Calhoun understood what was going on here. Um, and he understood what would happen with politics and why the left is committed to this now. I hope their commitment is true. But this is what he said. I'm going to read you part of his uh, disquisition on government. And he said this, quote, There is another error of a kindred character whose influence contributes much to the same results. I refer to the prevalent opinion that a written constitution containing suitable restrictions on the powers of government is sufficient of itself without the aid of any organism except such as is necessary to separate its several departments and render them independent of each other to, to counteract the tendency of the numerical majority to oppress and, abuse, uh, oppress and the abuse of power. A written constitution certainly has many and considerable advantages, but it is a great mistake to suppose that the mere insertion of provisions to restrict and limit the powers of the government without investing those for whose protection they are inserted with the means of enforcing their observance will be sufficient to prevent the major and dominant party from abusing its powers. Being the party in possession of the government, they will, from the same constitution of man which makes government necessary to, to protect society, be in favor of the powers granted by the constitution and opposed to the restrictions intended to limit them. So the party in power is going to abuse power. They will be opposed to any restrictions on their power. As the major and dominant party, they will have no need of these restrictions for their protection. The ballot box of itself would be ample protection to them. When the Democrats are in power, this is exactly how they think too. Needing no other, they would come in time to regard these limitations as unnecessary and improper restrictions and endeavor to elude them with the view of increasing their power and influence. This is what Calhoun is saying in the 1830s. To the minor or weaker party, on the contrary, would take the opposite direction and regard them as essential to their protection against the dominant party. And hence, they would endeavor to defend and enlarge the restrictions and to limit and contract their powers. But where there are no means by which they could compel the major party to observe the restrictions, the only resort left them would be a strict construction of the Constitution. That is, a construction which would confine these powers to the narrowest limits which the meaning of the words used in the grant would admit. This is exactly what Hillary Clinton is saying now, you see. But for years, quote-unquote conservatives have said these things. Of course, the general government doesn't care because it's all nationalists. It doesn't matter which party's in power. They're going to abuse power. Calhoun pointed this out in the 1830s. Uh, to this, the major party would oppose a liberal con uh, constitution or a liberal construction, which 
one which would give to the words of the great the grant the broadest meaning of which they were susceptible. It would then be construction against construction, the one to contrast and the other to enlarge the powers of the government to the utmost. But of what possible avail could the strict construction of the minor party be against the liberal interpretation of the major, when the one would have all the powers of the government to carry its construction into effect, and the other be deprived of all means of enforcing its construction? In a contest so unequal, the result would not be doubtful. The party in favor of the restrictions would be overpowered. At first they might command some respect and do something to stay the march of encroachment, but they would, in the progress of the contest, be regarded as mere abstractionists, and indeed, deservedly, if they should indulge the folly of supposing that the party in possession of the ballot box and the physical force of the country could be successfully resisted by an appeal to reason, truth, justice, or the obligations imposed by the construction. For when these of themselves shall be exert sufficient influence to stay the hand of power, then the government will be no longer necessary to protect society, nor constitutions needed to prevent government from abusing its powers. The end of the contest would be the subversion of the Constitution, either by the undermining process of construction, where its means would admit a possible doubt, or by substituting and practice that is called party usage in place of its provisions. Or finally, when no other contrivance would, subver- would subserve the purpose, be openly and boldly setting them aside. By the one or the other, restrictions would ultimately be annulled and the government be converted into one of unlimited powers. So what he's saying here is party mechanisms would take place. There'd be unlimited powers because it's all about R&D or at his time, you know, uh, W and D. It, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. And this is exactly what's happening in America now. We don't really have a constitution anymore. We have party government. And each, each side is clamoring for the, for the spoils of the center. But every, when, when the party's out of power, they start talking about federalism. We need to talk about federalism, thinking locally, acting locally all the time, even when you're in power. Because that's the only way we're going to actually make, keep this thing from, from just creating a complete mess and devolving into a really nasty situation. So I applaud Hillary Clinton for actually saying this. We got to go back, and of course, it's funny because you call her a neo-confederate and other things. And I mean, this is this is what the right would be called if they said these things: neo-confederates are just about oppressing people. No, it's about protecting people against the left, and the left is trying to protect people against the right. And the states are the way to do it. Always has been. It always has been. So go to this conference. I think you're going to get some some real uh, juice out of it to go out there and and be active in, uh, in promoting these ideas. And of course, listen to this podcast and uh, go and support the 10th Amendment Center, uh, you know, do these things because this is essential for this Think Locally, Act Locally message. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time.